Two days ago, I was interviewing this guy, Adrian. You're going to hear from him in a few weeks. He's a scientist, and we were talking about human origins. So we're going to kind of go into the question of man evolving from lower species and how that has been a polarizing factor in the church uh, and in faith communities. I'm going to take a little break from politics for that week. But he said something about science. He said, the conversation is never over. And I thought that was a pretty good way of describing what we're trying to do on this show as well. It's another way of saying what we're trying to do here, which is that the minute I say the conversation is over, there's nothing more to learn, then I say any idiot should be able to see that the conversation's over and the evidence is in, and therefore the only thing left to do is to win. I told him that I might have to steal that line and looks like I've already done it. So here's a question. Was Obama, quote, good for America on finances? How do we go about answering that question? What kind of data would we need to answer it? How long until we can really be sure of our answer? Five years, 25 years? We could ask the same question of George W. Bush. Do we know enough about fiscal policy under his administration to give him a grade? If we realize our impotence here, it forces us to concede that, in fact, the conversation is still ongoing. This helps us lower the banner of our chosen party or chosen fiscal perspective and requires a dose of humility. Our guest today, David Dayan, obviously cares a great deal for the financial plight of the average American, and his book focuses on a particular subgroup of Americans who were disproportionately hurt by the various and very complicated mortgage scandals that rocked U.S. real estate financial institutions in 2007 and 2008, as well as the global financial community. For David, Obama and his financial policies, as well as his legal posture toward the financial community, are very much complicit in this tragedy. Now, in general, as you know, I like Obama. He talks like me. He appears to think about the world kind of the way I do. He thinks more clearly about it than I do. He knows a lot more, but I identify with him. It's hard for me to hear specific arguments made by people who know more than me that implicate this president, whom I generally liked quite a lot, who I voted for, and whose inauguration I watched in a sports arena in Oakland, California, filled mostly with African Americans. It was a crazy moment in my life. And yet, here's this argument. I can't in good conscience turn my head away or plug up my ears. I must be aware of my own confirmation bias and take part in the discussion. And the reason I must do this is for the sake of those Americans who were unfairly hurt by these practices and for whom there has been little to no justice. In the words of Michael Ware, last week's guest, I must be willing to critique my own, perhaps more so than I critique the other side, but at least equally. And it's my belief that that mountain, though difficult, is worth climbing. David, thank you for being here. Can you please give us a little bit of your bona fides and your history um, as to what gives you expertise to talk about all this stuff? All right. Uh, I have been writing about politics and policy since about 2004. Currently, I write for The Nation, The Intercept, uh, The American Prospect, and several other publications. Uh, I had a book come out last year called 
uh, Chain of Title, How Three Ordinary Americans Uncovered Wall Street's Great Foreclosure Fraud. It was about the foreclosure crisis and its aftermath. And I have, uh, you know, it's almost like Groundhog Day. I've just been around so long. I've been writing about this stuff for so long that uh, I just know a bunch of things. Yeah, that's awesome. I started the book and um, I haven't gotten very far, but I'm already struck by how complicated the story is going to get behind like what actually happened, like so many layers deep from the consumer to the actual bank that's like, quote unquote, holding the mortgage or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Can, mm-hmm. You, can you just give us like a, a sense of how complicated in, in a paragraph or two the foreclosure market had become by 2007? Well, of course, uh, the the mortgage industry thrives on complexity. The more intermediated it is, the further away that you are from the actual transaction, the, the more opportunity there is for the risk to be passed along. So, I mean, what we're really talking about is a literal chain. The old days in in the 50s, maybe, when you purchased a mortgage, you would purchase it from a local community bank who would hold on to that mortgage, and you would pay them and pay out their interest, and after the 30 years were up, or or maybe before, you would have paid that off, and you'd have a big mortgage-burning party, and uh, the bank would profit from the interest, particularly if it was more profitable to them than whatever interest they lent out in in terms of savings accounts and things like that. So that was the spread, and that was the way in which they made money. Now, in the financial crisis, or in the housing bubble, let's say, the difference was that uh, you would purchase a mortgage, usually from a company that was not a bank. That company would immediately sell that mortgage to an investment bank that guaranteed a certain line of credit to that non-bank company for uh, if they would you know make a lot of mortgages that investment bank would then package those mortgages together sell them to a trustee that trustee would then market and sell these mortgages all over the world as mortgage-backed securities. And there are multiple transactions within that that I'm leaving out. So we're talking about eight or nine links in this chain rather than just one. There used to be just one, you and the community bank. Now it's you and an originator, an investment bank, a depositor, a trustee, uh, an investor. So the difference there is is that the risk gets passed along and it's just less likely for that originator, for example, which is who you had direct contact Yeah, who you with. actually spoke to. Yes. That originator is less interested in your well-being, just uh, in, in basic yeah. terms. And actually less incentivized to treat you well as a customer because unlike, say, if you buy something from Target and it's defective, well, Target needs to make you happy so that you continue shopping at Target. But in this scenario, there's just like almost no way that anyone even finds out who screwed up if someone screws up. And so there's no there's no even consumer pressure on the right. bank to act well. Right. The, 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 this originator has already been paid off for your loan by the investment bank. So if they make a, a bad loan to you and you end up not paying it, they're not going to be affected. 
They're yeah. already paid off and out of the transaction. So there's there's a part in your book where this gets illustrated really well. So you've got Lisa Epstein, who's one of your main characters. And at one point, she buys a condo in Florida that's like a $50,000 condo. She puts like something like half down. And she arranges a fixed-rate mortgage with one of the like 75-year-old residents of the building <laughs> where she just puts her check under the you know, door once right. a month for five years or 10 years, whatever the term was on it. Just reading it, I was like, it made me smile in the way like a Disney film makes you smile. Like it's just some innocence, like what innocence to just like exactly. borrow money from someone, pay them fairly. It's, it shows how cynical we've become about banks that that made me like laugh to read about someone who could just do that. Yeah, and it was just this was the person who she was buying this this condo yeah, from. Like and it was a co-op. Yeah, it was a co-op, and so you're sort of buying a share in the sort of organization that owns this set of properties. Yeah, and uh, the reason that that she had to do that is that the banks, thinking co-ops are a risk, would not lend to her <laughs> that money. Yeah, so this old couple said, well, we'll lend you the money and, and you can just go ahead and pay us back. This is so and great. It was a, sort of an echo of what it was like in that time when everybody had a stake in each other's success. Yeah. You know, there was a, a, a rule in the savings and loan industry prior to it blowing up that uh, you could only lend out within a 50 mile radius of your headquarters. And the purpose behind this was that you would then have this incentive to build up goodwill and good feeling within that local community. Right. And you you would make your 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 basis, your profit there instead of this far-flung process that we just described. So it, it's really a hearkening back to that, what Lisa Epstein ended up having on the condo. And then, of course, she purchases a home and has the exact opposite experience yeah. where she qualified for a, a prime mortgage but was given a subprime one because it was more profitable to that investment bank. They asked this originator, get us more high-cost loans because we can sell those in the market in a more profitable way. Right. So, okay, I want to return to that, but there's some steps, I think, for understanding that will help me get mm -hmm. there. So you're talking about packaging mortgages together and and there's you know if if you've seen the big short which i imagine you have uh, and many of our listeners have there's like some funny scenes where they have like these actors sort of spelling out some of this complicated stuff but there's the scene of the guy in the in the 70s or 80s who's like comes up with this idea of selling yes. mortgage backed securities now his original idea as i understand it there's nothing unethical about the idea of spreading out risk Statistically, people pay back their mortgages. It's actually a pretty great way for a capitalist market system to build wealth. It's basically saying, you know, people pay their mortgages. These are good mortgages to people with good credit who qualify for them. Let's spread this risk out. Let's invest this elsewhere. And it will it will earn income for everybody. And that's that's fine. So there's no right. problem there 
right? The I, problem. I think that's co- right. Okay. I, I think I think what Lou Ranieri, and that's the yeah. individual who you were talking about, didn't re- what he didn't recognize is how that would inevitably distort the incentive process and misalign the desires and needs of everyone within that process. Because once you expand it out to the originator having certain desires, the investment bank having certain desires, and the investor itself having certain desires, once those get misaligned, you end up having problems. And so Hmm. uh, the investor just wants a decent investment and was told that, you know, mortgages never go down and this risk will get spread. The investment bank wants to maximize their profits. and, and, And they realize that the more high cost loans they could make, the more profit they could make, and they would not be hurt by any kind of aftermath because they will have already been paid out. They are passing the risk along like a hot potato. And so that is where we got into problems, and it's the one thing that Ranieri really didn't recognize. Okay, so theoretically, if people had maybe just stuck to exactly the thing that he set up, we might not be in a big mess, but the incentives that were created by this new mortgage-backed security inevitably led through greed to the situation that we ended up with. Right. I mean, to say that that it would have been fine if we just stuck to Ranieri's plan just sort of neglects the fact that <laughs> yeah. uh, Ranieri's plan inevitably leads you right. towards this isolation of incentive and risk. Okay. So Lisa is a great example, the character or the real person that your book is it focuses on in that so she qualified for a regular prime mortgage. This is the kind of mortgage I assume I have on my home. We put 10% mm-hmm. down, paid some mortgage insurance. Later on, we refinance. We got rid of that. So now we have 20% equity, more or less, and right. we, we pay our mortgage. That's a prime mortgage. What is a subprime mortgage? Obviously, we've all heard this term, but just refresh our memories. Well, there are a variety of different subprime mortgages. They could have a number of special features. Some have a teaser rate on the interest, which after two years then ramps up to a higher rate. They're known as 228 loans. There are uh, what are called ninja loans, no income, no job, no asset. Uh, These are loans where you state your income without having to even prove it. There are negative amortization loans, which uh, actually only pay off the interest on the loan and never get to the principal uh, or even pay less than the interest on the loan. And that remain that's what negative amortization is. And then the remaining amount gets capitalized into the principal. So your principal is actually growing as you go along. So those loans assume a certain amount of basically, let's say your home has to go up 2% a year to break even. On a That's negative, correct. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In oh terms, in terms of the value, the property value. Yeah. Now, a lot of these have been eliminated or banned or barred by the Dodd Frank financial reform, but this is the world that we were in yeah. a decade ago. Okay. Uh, yeah. So, to make things political a little bit, to bring it to the 2016 election and and our current state of politics. I've seen it written multiple places and heard it that one of the biggest, if not the single biggest failing of the Democrats during the eight Obama years was the fact that no Wall Street executives were ever punished for the financial crisis. Do you agree with that statement? I I do share that view and I share that view for a variety of reasons. The biggest being that I think what we learned 
in this past election cycle is that the social fabric of our country is a bit fragile. Yeah. And when you set up a circumstance that there are going to be two tiers of of the justice system. There's going to be one justice system for everybody and then another one for the rich, powerful, and well-connected. And everyone sort of has a feeling that that's the case already, but the financial crisis and its aftermath made that too big to ignore. Uh, It was very stark that you had you know, equivalent situations in the recent past, like the savings and loan crisis, where a thousand bank executives went to jail. And here we have, after a much bigger crisis that caused a much bigger recession. Yeah, literally global recession caused by these American bankers. And and nothing happens. Uh, uh, Virtually nothing happens. And so, yeah, you can almost imagine, like, the funny thing is, that touches on American-based world sort of global peace order too. Like, Mm -hmm. so one of the things that Trump voters and and maybe even Bernie voters sort of were rebelling against is the idea, this sort of uncontested post-World War II, especially post-Cold War, global peace with the United States as its center. And then the financial crisis happens. We have a global-minded president who's going to restore our image all over the world and obviously he did in a lot of ways, um, so give him credit for that. But in this way, we caused, like unequivocally, very obviously, American banking caused a global financial recession. It was not caused by German bankers. It was caused by American bankers, or at least American-based investment banks and, and mortgage yeah. companies sure. that had ripple effects throughout the whole world. And then we don't prosecute our own. You can imagine a voter sitting there going, what are you talking about? Like global peace founded in American justice and power. Like we're not even, well, you know what I mean? It just promoted this sense that uh, the country is undergoing a certain agenda. And I, the guy living in Pennsylvania or Ohio or Indiana, has nothing to do with it. Like yeah. my concerns are not involved in the concerns of this global order that you talk about. And the fact that when the part of the crisis that I was most powerfully affected by, my job, my house being uh, taken from me, that kind of thing, when that had no responsibility or accountability attached to it, then it becomes that kind of break stuff election that a lot of people talked about. Well, if they're not acting in my interest, why do I have to adhere to their standards of uh, you know who is allowed and who is not allowed to gain power? Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, the more I think about that, the more it makes sense to me to be so thoroughly frustrated with sort of the status quo, at least in the kind of elite financial and political realm of mm-hmm. D.C. and Wall Street. So... Why was no one ever charged with a crime? I mean, so why were a thousand bankers in the savings and loan crisis uh, charged and no one for the mortgage crisis? I mean, I can't get into the heads of uh, the the, the people who had the real opportunity 
to do so, I, I can only look at the results, and, and the results are pretty clear. As far as motives, I mean, a lot of things have been offered. You, you definitely had people at the top of the Justice Department who were came from the world of corporate law, in fact, were uh, many of them were came from and went back to Covington and Burling, this large corporate law firm that uh, counts among its clients most of the major banks in this country. Mm. Uh, that's where Eric Holder came from. That's where the head of the criminal division, Lanny Brewer, came from. Uh, and that's where they went back to after the Obama administration ended. So their mindset, as I understand it, was a one of never – losing a case, basically going in and saying, we can only prosecute if we're absolutely 100% dead solid that we are going to win, which is the worst way for a prosecutor to think. You know, there were certainly were fears that the banking institutions could crumble uh, entirely if they were forced to uphold a certain standard of responsibility for what they did, which I think is tautological reasoning and, and certainly doesn't make sense years after the bailouts have been given and the, the industry has been nursed back to health and also makes no sense in terms of individual accountability. If J.P. Morgan Chase cannot survive without Jamie Dimon as the CEO – then that institution has a much bigger problem. They should not be that dependent on one executive for their very survival. That that points to a greater rot in the system that should be rooted out rather than propped up uh, out of fear. And so there, you know, I mean, we've heard all of these, but I do think that that question – I mean, that's the first line of my book. It says there is a rot at the heart of our democracy. There's this gnawing sense that we didn't get this accountability that we wanted out of the aftermath of this grave crisis that hurt so many people. I mean, you're talking about eight, nine million families. That's close to 20 million Americans who were affected with the loss of their home as a result of this crisis. Yeah, not just losing one's individual home, but you think about, you know, I live on the West Coast. I live in Seattle. I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. And as early as 2009, 2010, what everyone on the West Coast is saying is, oh, you know, did you see San Francisco? You know, there are articles coming out. San Francisco never even dropped in value. Seattle and San Jose have already got to their pre-recession levels in about two and a half years. These are not the parts of the country that voted for Trump, right? I mean, if you live in Gary, Indiana, you might not even – I I assume like by now most housing markets are roughly back to where they were before 2007. I don't Mm -hmm. know the data on that. But that's a long time. Right. Right. We're talking well, there 10 are, years. There are some studies that have been conducted that show that, that areas with higher rates of negative equity, in other words, areas that are yeah. more underwater now are just as bad or, or haven't recovered to the extent of other places, voted for Trump in higher yeah. uh, numbers. And so, and, and a lot of people say, well, that's correlation and not causation because those are areas that failed to come back very hard after the, uh, you know, uh, uh, in general, they're rural areas, they're more depressed. But I think those things all play together. Totally I mean, the, they the, do. The, the whole idea is that – and there have been studies on, on areas at the zip code level that came back slower 
after the crisis tend to correlate with areas that had higher rates of foreclosures and higher rates of negative equity because there's a fear factor that gets involved when you think that at any moment are going to be thrown out into the street and are going to have to find a new place to live. You're not making those purchases and you're keeping some sort of savings for yourself as an emergency to prepare for that eventuality. And that consumer spending is two-thirds of our economy. That necessarily cuts into what you can end up spending and, and boosting your economy locally. So, yeah. I also am just thinking emotionally, right? Like growing up and living on the West Coast for my entire life, I did not share the same aftermath of the financial crisis that someone yes. in Kansas had. Absolutely. And what you're, what you're pinpointing is something called regional inequality. Yeah. And uh, not everyone in this economy experiences it in the same way. And you're also pinpointing the relationship between home ownership and this story that we've been told about the American dream. I mean, Americans have a very curious, curious relative to the rest of the world, personal emotional attachment to home ownership. They see it as more than just a pile of, of wood and reinforcements. Yeah. They see it as the place where their kids grew up and the, the storehouse of their entire uh, self-worth in many ways. And when you rip that away, and when you not only rip that away, but you do it in a, a fraudulent way and no one is held accountable for it, that really hurts the American psyche, I think. And, yeah, and, and even I if think it's not your home, even if it's your neighbor's home or your coworker's Absolutely. home or your cousin's Absolutely. home. Absolutely. And, and then you with wait. 20 million people who experience that, everyone has a story. Yeah. Everyone knows somebody who went through that. And everyone has their little portion of this sense that the government wasn't working in our interests. The rich and powerful got away with it. The Obama administration's main program for uh, foreclosure mitigation was an absolute failure. Uh, It was this thing that promised to spend a certain amount of money to help people with their loan modifications. It became used practically as a predatory lending program by the mortgage companies who would use this program to trap borrowers into these horrific scenarios. I mean, every, literally everyone I've ever talked to about this who's gone through it talks about having to send in applications for a loan modification 10, 15 times, having their paperwork lost, never getting the same person twice, so having to explain their entire situation over again to a representative. This is a federal program that Obama instituted. I'm not familiar with this Aha, part of the story. This is the, this is the problem, yes. This is a program called HAMP, the Home Affordable Modification Program. It actually ended uh, at the end of last year, but it was not in the sense of a government program where you would talk to a, a government agent in some way and they would help you with assistance to save your home. It was routed through these mortgage servicing companies. So this government program had the face of a mortgage servicing company that had more incentives to foreclose on you than to modify your loan based on its compensation model. (laughs) And so this whole – it really – really what this did is it hurt the whole concept of activist government. Because the 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 yeah, if you want the government to be activist, you want the government coming in and helping you keep your home. 
Right. You were told about this government program that was had assistance available for you so that if you were in trouble, you purchased your home at the wrong time, you were due, whatever it was, you could get assistance through this program. And then the people who were the arbiters of the program are faceless private companies that could use the program and turn it on you as a weapon. Hmm. And that only reinforce the famous dictum by Ronald Reagan that the the most dangerous words in the English language were, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Uh, (laughs) This program really hurt the concept of liberalism. I mean, you know, people say, well, you know, the Tea Party was against homeowner aid and how could Trump be helped by the foreclosure crisis and things like this? It's because liberalism ended up being abandoned by people who only saw it as the way to facilitate a a non-government actor into abusing your goodwill and trust. Uh, Yeah, the idea being that if these mortgage servicing companies are directly accountable to consumers – they will have to act in such such a way because the free market will dictate that they need consumers to like them. But if they are backed by the federal government, then they are not held to those same constraints or pressures, and then they'll just figure out how to make the most money, at, and it's probably going to be at the expense of the consumer. Well, I mean, yes, in a, in a way. The companies that I'm talking about, and when I talk about a servicer, that is the company who you pay your mortgage to. Okay. They don't necessarily own the loan because that could be owned by an investor in Norway or something. They are the company who is hired by those investors to do day-to-day operations on your loan. And, that, and, and part of that is deciding whether or not to foreclose on you. And the way they get paid is from a percentage, uh, a few ways, but the two biggest are a percentage of the unpaid principal balance on your loan. So why would they ever cut the principal on your loan? Yeah, you, they would literally be cutting their own pay. Have you put a little That's down as possible? One. Yeah. And number two, they get paid out from fees, late fees, inspection fees, a million different foreclosure fees. And those are paid out first in a foreclosure sale. Oh the servicer gosh. gets paid off first, and then the investor gets the rest. So there was every incentive on the part of these mortgage servicing companies to foreclose. And the way HAMP worked is it was giving servicers money to modify your loan, but it was not nearly enough money as the money they could make from the homeowner it's himself or herself by foreclosing. So the incentives were not aligned. And then they found out that, oh, we could get trial payments because the, the way HAMP worked was you got three trial payments uh, and if you could you could hold on to uh, a, a modified payment, then eventually the servicer can say, okay, now it's permanent, and then you get a permanent modification. They realized they could stretch out those three modified payments to 10 modified payments or 15 modified payments and then say to the homeowner, oh, uh, we denied your permanent modification, and now you owe us the difference between the original and the modified payment, and you owe it to us right now or we're going to foreclose on this home. So it was a way to stretch out foreclosures. Tim Geithner, who was uh, President Obama's first Treasury Secretary, said in a meeting to Elizabeth Warren and uh, Neil Borowski, who was the head of the uh, Inspector General of the TARP program, which was the bailout, we think this program is going to foam the runway for the banks. In other words, it would allow them to absorb foreclosures more slowly 
the bank balance sheets being more important than the homeowner balance sheets, you understand. And we will allow the system to work itself out in a, a smoother way. So foaming the runway, the homeowners are the foam that the jumbo jet falls on in that scenario. I will try not to bug you with this every week, guys, but I did start a Patreon campaign for you to help support this show financially if you want to. The donations start at three bucks a month and they go up from there. I'm not trying to pressure you to break the bank, but this show does cost me about $400 a month to make out of my own pocket, and I'd really just love to cover those costs at this point. This month, before anyone's credit cards are charged, I put up a conversation between my buddy Ryan and I about the film I Am Not Your Negro, the James Baldwin documentary that we had just seen, and that's for patrons only. Next month, there is a conversation that I had with a small group in South Carolina talking about depolarization and applying it to Christianity and to the church. It involves like a 10-minute presentation that I gave at the beginning and then a bunch of question and answers from that group. It's about an hour long. And that, too, will be for patrons only. Sorry, the rest of you guys. But I am trying to incentivize you to help the show if it's something that you think is valuable. Appreciate your guys' support. And here is an ad for a brand new podcast also on the Bad Christian Network, which is the network that this show is on. Sounds pretty good to me. Check it out. My name is Melanie Studley, and seven years ago, I wanted to divorce my husband, Seth, who happens to be a therapist. However, we did not get a divorce. Instead, we documented the process of repairing our nearly failed marriage. Part of the power is it's so unspoken. Like, you're such a jerk about it. I would rather be divorced than fight like this all the time. So join us as we interview couples, therapists, doctors, and more on the all-new Stronger Marriages podcast. Subscribe on iTunes or visit strongermarriages.com forward slash podcast. Okay, so we talked with Matt Stoller um, a few weeks ago about this, and he he mentioned. By the way, if you haven't listened to that episode, go back and listen to it, especially if you're enjoying David here today, because these are episodes of a feather. Uh, but he mentioned this distinction of, of um, you know the corporate balance sheets versus the the homeowner balance sheets, uh, individual owners, or even add them all up together. And so you're aligning again on this image. Can you tell us what you mean by that distinction? Or let me tell me if I'm right. You mean what Obama and his financial team were more concerned about was the fact that the banks became profitable as soon as possible so that they would not collapse, causing a complete collapse of the economy and maybe a global depression. And the cost of that work was basically shouldered by individual homeowners. And because it's the type of homeowners who are near or at foreclosure levels, by definition, the kind of homeowners who cannot afford to shoulder that burden. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's accurate. And and the way it was put to me by a very prominent figure was that Tim Geithner and Larry Summers wake up every morning worrying what America would be like without Goldman Sachs. Yeah. And others, uh, maybe people like me and this prominent figure that was telling me this, said that I wake up every day wondering what America would be like without a middle class. Yeah. So it's a question of, of your point of view. It's a question of if you see the banking system as central to 
maintaining the standard of living that Americans enjoy, mm. then you're going to want to prop up that banking system and hope that that you know, filters down into propping up the entire economy. If you think that the middle class is the center around which all of this gets restored, then you will want to do what you can to prop up the middle class and hope that that rising tide will lift all boats. So that's the key distinction, I think, here. And it was very clear that first-term Obama was much more concerned in the bank balance sheets over the homeowner balance sheets. Yeah. Now, there is a little bit of a paradox here, and you alluded to it earlier. Um, The Tea Party was basically founded, if I have my facts straight, on this notion that this man, you know, yelled at the Chicago Stock Exchange or whatever, that like, right. we should not all be responsible for people who got bad home mortgages. The American taxpayers should not, you know, hardworking people should not be bailing out non-hardworking people, if you could boil it down to a, a simple talking point. Yeah, I mean, what you're talking about is different f- types of populism. You know, I mean, there's there's left wing populism and right wing populism. And uh, the Tea Party is an exemplar of right wing populism, which essentially said that, well, this problem is all government focused. They forced the lenders to give these loans out to poor people. They predictably blew up. We should not help them out at the expense of hardworking taxpayers because the government puts together a program that's mandated that way. And the way to fix this entire system is to get the government out of it and then put together a private market where everybody has certain responsibilities. That routes this entire crisis through the lens of it being a government failure, that government is making you powerless, that government is the oppressor in this case. Uh, A left-wing populism, as exemplified by Bernie Sanders or whoever, says – you know, the idea that you're out of power because of the government is not true. You're out of power because J.P. Morgan wants it that way. Mm. You're out of power because they created systems by which they could trick you and screw you, and the government is supposed to step in and do something about that. Yeah. The sort of middle ground that I was occupied by Obama essentially said, no, you're not out of power. We did our job. We stabilized the system, and in that stabilization, we restored your power. And Mm. it's not a surprise that people uh, in 2016 looked at that and said, you're being ridiculous. We are not in power. Remember, like Hillary Clinton's slogan was, America is already great, right? That's kind of what I'm getting at here. There was a disconnect between the claims of uh, the sort of center left and, and, and the Clinton campaign that things are going well, things are humming along, and all we have to do is make a couple moderate tweaks and we're going to sustain yeah. this well-thought-out, well-devised system, and the lived reality that people were experiencing, particularly in areas that had been abandoned by private enterprise that have been turned into these seas of conformity with Walmarts and, and and chain stores all throughout the landscape that have lost their uniquehood in many ways. 
and that then uh, had their homes kind of ravaged by this mass crime wave of the last decade. So those are kind of the three approaches, I'd say. And sometimes there looks to be overlap between the right-wing populism and the left-wing populism, but I don't think if you scratch the surface that it's really there because one is entirely focused on government as the problem, and another is entirely focused on these laissez-faire capitalism really as the problem and the dominance of corporate hegemony in the political sphere. First of all, let me just say I love that you called the foreclosure scandal a crime wave. That is refreshing to hear the word crime wave for something other than like robberies and murders. <laughs> I, I, I just think that's the best way to it put is. it. I mean, yeah. if you do read the book, uh, the entire book is about the fact that millions and millions of documents used to foreclose on people were phony, were fraudulent. Wow. And there is no other way to describe that other than a crime wave. I yeah. mean, you had these companies who were mass producing fake documents because they otherwise could not prove that they were allowed to take these homes legally. Mm -hmm. The better word for that is theft. Yeah. <laughs> it's stealing yeah. homes. And we saw it happen over and over and over again in millions of cases in the aftermath of the financial crisis. And people who minimize that or diminish that aren't getting the whole picture. Okay, so I want to propose a partial solution, a, a bridge crossing between populists of the left and the right okay. to you and see what you think. Before that, I need to explain a bit more to our listeners. So the paradox that I was kind of getting at is you'd think that the neighbor of a foreclosed homeowner or a foreclosed homeowner themselves would want the government in some way to help them out against these crooked banks. Uh, you would not think that they would say, oh, keep the government entirely out of this because laissez-faire, as you said, uh, financial regulations are what led to the housing collapse. But as I'm learning from Arlie Hochschild's book, I don't know if I'm saying mm -hmm. her name right, Strangers mm -hmm. in Their Own Land, mm -hmm. a lot of it has to do with this like deep, deep sense that government just is bad at doing things. And right. you have this kind of libertarian streak within the Tea Party of like, give us our roads, give us our police and our prisons, and mostly leave us alone. Right. So there's a part of that that would not work for a Bernie Sanders or an Elizabeth Warren because they think, no, you know, the government needs to act on private enterprise on behalf of the people. But here's my solution that I'd like to throw out and see what you think of it. Could the left-wing populists, the Bernies and the Elizabeths, could they frame it like a police, roads, army kind of a situation and say, look, you guys are right. We need banks who have financial incentive through the free market to treat their customers well because when they have that incentive, they will. Or another bank will come in and do a better job that didn't foreclose on five of your neighbors and everyone goes – Hey, you know, stop using uh, Home Street and start using Umpqua, you know, for instance, in the <laughs> Northwest. Like, I would hear about that if many of my friends had difficult experiences with Home Street, great experiences with Umpqua, Umpqua would do better. Mm -hmm. Can we phrase it, we, can they phrase it in such a way that is like, it's like the police and the whole point of it is to let the market do its work. Could there be a coming together? 
I, I think that Warren does often describe it. As, uh, you know, she describes CFPB, uh, her her brainchild for a consumer agency, as cops on the beat. I mean, she does use that kind of terminology. But yeah. I, I, I want to get back to one thing that you said because the reason that uh, people have this sense that government can't do anything right is that government hasn't done a lot right in the yeah. last 35, 40 years. They have a lived experience where they pay their taxes and they're not sure what they're getting back for it. I yeah. mean, part of this is because of the sort of submerged state where you don't see your mortgage interest deduction, for example, as something that is a big government program that helps uh, actually people in the upper middle to middle class. But yeah. It is. It's a huge government. It's bigger than any government program that we have. Hmm. You don't see it that way. And the problem is, is that we've had about 40 years of either rampant deregulation or technocratic solutions that pick around the edges to try to ameliorate whatever deregulation causes. And people don't have that sense that their being helped. Look at what Obama did in the stimulus. He created this thing that was a uh, $400 tax credit. And it wasn't a check for $400 that you got, but he took a little bit less out of your withholding every month because there was this behavioral economics theory that if you took a little bit less out of withholding and you had a slightly higher paycheck, you'd be more inclined to spend it than if you got a $400 lump sum and you'd put it in the bank. Well, that maybe, I don't even know if that totally works from a behavioral economic standpoint. Politically, it's a bust. Right. That is the dumbest thing you could possibly do to try to hide a benefit uh, from the American <laughs> public. I mean, think about yeah. it. Yeah. So can you I imagine? Can you imagine Trump doing something like that helped every American that he didn't take credit for ten but he times? He didn't want it. Not only take credit right. for it, he wouldn't identify it. Like, like, like yeah. can you imagine Trump not identifying something? So there's a quiet. There's a quiet kind of a humility and beauty to that move by Obama, insofar as th- those of us who love the way myself included, who love the way that Obama talked about the world, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I go, oh, what a great man. He's not taking political credit for it. Right. He's just trying to help, right? I mean, that, that would be my initial reaction. But what it but, neglects yeah, is right. sort of the educational aspect yes. of politics, right. where you you need, and, and this is something that I, I've been toying with the idea of a second book of just analyzing Roosevelt's fireside chats because yeah. that was the ultimate in actually providing a history lesson of what happened and what needs to happen in the aftermath to create protections. And that taught a generation of Americans that, yes, this is what this individual and this individual's political ideology has given us. Hmm. Matt Stoller actually put out an article, uh, it was in The Atlantic, around Democrats in the 70s and how they sort of abandoned yeah, New Deal liberalism. Yeah, how liberals sold out their populist soul or something like that. That's right. And, yeah. and one thing he talks about in that is this index card that Democrats in the 30s and 40s would give to their constituents. And literally what it said on it was, this is what the Democrats have given us. And it would list actual things that the Democrats created 
Rick Perlstein, the great uh, historian and author, writes about how at one point when prominent Democrat was asked, you know, what the slogan is for a particular campaign year, he said, Democrats, freedom and groceries. Like it was tangible stuff. Wow. Yeah. It was actual things that you would get as a result of being a, a constituent under this political coalition. And that's what we've gotten away from. And it would be one thing if that provided a certain amount of safety and security and prosperity. You don't necessarily need the educational angle if you can actually see that things are generally getting better in your own life. Right. If you are doing these sort of technocratic things because it's, I don't know, crass and callous to actually take credit for your actions, and they're not working. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and since 1979, we've seen productivity and wages spread apart. And we've seen wages stagnate for the last 15 yeah. years, 30 years, really, if you don't count a small period in the late 90s. Then you get a much bigger problem. People get alienated. They feel abandoned. If you have markets that completely concentrate everywhere, all over the, uh, all over the country in every sector, so you limit your choices, you limit the ability to pursue your talents, you homogenize the landscape, as I talked about before, it's easy to think that the government – is not acting in my interest, that the right. government is not doing the kinds of things that, that would make me feel better about my lot in life. And I, I think that's ultimately the issue. So full circle, you would you really are saying, yeah, this was the one of the biggest failings of Obama's administration is is not not solving this and not prosecuting for it and not focusing on the people whom it would affect most, the individuals. But let's Yeah, I think that's right. Okay. Let's transition to Trump for a little bit. Okay. What do we know thus far about Trump's dealing with the financial industry? Well, just today on Friday, he came out with an executive order authorizing his uh, various cabinet agencies, federal agencies to uh, look into undoing the Dodd-Frank Act, which was the one signature thing that Obama put together to react to the financial crisis. In particular, he took one law, which is uh, the, known as the fiduciary rule, which forces investment advisors to actually act in the best interest of their clients. Uh, and he threw out the implementation of that and said, we're going to rescind that rule. Obama did that with Dodd-Frank. Uh, it was actually not a Dodd-Frank law. It was actually based on a, a law from back in the 1970s, but it was never put together so that Yes, these investment advisors have to have a fiduciary interest in their clients. Wait, so Obama made it such that they did need to, or he removed that stipulation so they no longer needed to? No, no. He, uh, Obama created uh, – well, I mean his labor department created this mandate that investment advisors would have to act in the best interest okay, of their clients. And this is going to be rescinded by the Trump administration. So you know, uh, this, this head of the National Economic Council under Trump, Gary Cohn, he was the president of Goldman Sachs. This was kind of the first day he's come out and been a spokesman for the administration, and he sounds like this cartoon villain – 
basically like everything <laughs> that you would hate about Wall Street's you know opportunity to to take advantage of people and laid it out just saying you know that uh this is the way it's going to go these these restrictions are hurting lending and they're shackling the banks and we need to be dominant all over the globe and this is preventing us from that and then he said weirdly says if we get rid of this hundreds of billions of dollars that is needed for compliance consumers will then have better choices and 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 better outcomes as if if the banks would just generously transfer that hundreds of billions of dollars right into the hands of their their customers. Right. So I think Trump is fairly well laid it on the table that the idea is going to be to deregulate. Now, whether they have to do that by changing rules and changing laws or whether they can just do that through neglect through just hiring people who will play card games instead of going out and examining the banks and 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 the various financial institutions i think i think it'll probably be the latter where they'll just you know just have a more laissez-faire attitude on things you know it's it's going to be a very permissive environment for the largest financial institutions for the next four years so to put it in the language of this interview, mm-hmm. it's like what Obama did, but maybe worse. Yeah, I mean, the true irony here is that Obama set up this framework whereby these bad financial actors would not be rooted out of the system, that they would not be disgraced, they would not be prosecuted, they would not be put into a position of accountability. And then Trump, sort of because of the tear in the social fabric that that created, capitalizes on this right. and, and it allows him to get into power. And then he hires the very people who might have been disgraced, like the treasury secretary who was the CEO right. of a foreclosing bank and the head of the National Economic Council who was the president of Goldman Sachs and brings them into power to then – disrupt the system even further. So it just shows you how toxic it was to make this choice. And it was a choice not to prosecute or not to get any, any accountability for this crisis. And, you know, there are a lot of reasons why that was a bad call, both economically, both in, in creating a deterrent. But it was also a bad call because now those people who would have otherwise been disgraced, are in power. Hmm. So, right, I'm not feeling very rosy about this situation. But, but at least this is... I'm sorry. You, no, 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 it's good. It's good to have the truth sometimes. You don't want your doctor telling you you don't have cancer when you have cancer. Um, <laughs> That's right. But there is something kind of beautifully depolarizing about this, and we talked about it before we started the interview, how, I mean, I love it when we can freely criticize ruling um, or governing members of both parties and just look objectively at or try to look objectively at sort of every actor and every faction in a situation and understand that no one has it completely right. Mm -hmm. But what would you say to a listener, a person who leans left, who Mm -hmm. maybe, you know, we, I'm guilty of this. We sort of automatically hold Obama up on a pedestal. This uh, episode has helped me, knock him down a little bit, down to a reasonable place. But what should I, I as like a left-leaning person, 
what should this information do to, to the way I think about politics in America? And, and what okay. should I be looking for? What should I be advocating to my Democratic congresspeople, right. et cetera? I think it offers a lesson that it's just not good enough to retain a system that caused so much suffering under the, the previous environment to retain it and try to build some, some safety structures on top of it is ultimately going to be, first of all, much easier to be dismantled by your predecessor and, or your successor. And it's just not going to be a stable solution yeah. to this problem. So what do we know about the financial system? Well, we know that uh, it has these big mega banks who have a lot of political power in addition to a lot of economic power. We know that they're all relentlessly connected to one another so that when one goes down, all of them suffer and, and all of them could come crumbling down. It's just a poorly designed engineering yeah. system. And we all know that they rely on short-term funding and these other gimmicks that make things very volatile in a time of crisis. So what do you want to do? You want to redesign that system. You got to think of it as more of an engineering problem than a political problem. And what we know is we want finance to be a channel by which productive activities get funded. We don't want it to be a channel by which large institutions get rich by gambling and not channeling that money into these productive activities. So I would say that the answer is that you got to break this down into system design and what you want that system to look like and how that can best be put together. And I actually did a piece I could I can now just throw to it. Uh, yeah. My piece in the American Prospect, the most recent edition, the winter edition, and I'm not sure if it's online yet, this piece, but it well, was we'll about... Look for it, and if it is, we'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, it was about the aftermath of Dodd-Frank, and it's in print, and how there are... The difference between now and 2008 is that after 2008, progressives, reformers did not have a language... To, and they did not have a plan to really come up with how to redesign this system like an engineer would. And now they do. There's been eight years of people thinking about, oh, in the aftermath of this crisis, what you could actually do to redesign the system. Nice. So if it does go south again, the shelf was empty in 2008, and mm -hmm. now the shelf is full. There are a lot of ideas for things that you could do. So the, the silver lining, if you wanted, is that – there are theories from people like uh, Morgan Ricks at Vanderbilt University and people like Saleh Omarova at Cornell and Robert Hockett at Cornell and other people who I all quote very liberally in the piece for how you would totally redesign this system so that it fits its mission, which is just to be a conduit for investment rather than to be a money-making activity on its own. So that leads me to the follow-up question, which is, what would you say to a voter on the right? And of course, this is maybe a bigger question because the House and Senate are, have majority of Republicans in them, and phone calls and letters to those lawmakers are – more powerful than the ones to Democratic senators and, and House members because they don't they can't get their agenda passed. So if I'm either talking to a friend who is a, a Republican or lives in a Republican state, a red state, or if I am a conservative leaning listener, 
what are the types of things I should be asking of my representatives uh-huh. toward this I, end? I think you should. I think you should ask whether the outcomes align with the goals. The outcome of eliminating this rule that, for example, allows uh, or forces uh, investment advisors to act in the best interest of their clients. Yeah. What is the goal there? That uh, this is supposed to increase consumer choice so that you can get people that rip you off or people that don't rip you off, that you could have that option. Uh, it just doesn't seem like a, uh, a smart system. And, yeah. um, you know, so I would say, what is it that you really sought out when you wanted to put conservatives in power. If it was limited government, that's that's fine, but but you need to define where government does need to play a role. And if you believe that it does in a certain way, you need to ask whether the outcomes that are coming out of Washington fit with that goals or whether they're just payback to contributors and 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 donors and people who who have a lot of power. So let's say you got a listener who's, you know, not a Tea Party member, they just lean Republican. They've mm-hmm. been convinced by this conversation with you and they want three bullet points that they can write in a letter to their congressperson. What are those three things that they ask for or whatever the number <laughs> is? Like, right. like, do we even know yet? Is it even actionable yet? Or do we, are we not even to that point where sort of we can say this, this, and this, I want you to push for? Yeah, I don't know that we can just yet, but, you know, I mean, in general, what we're seeing is this effort to sort of get government out of the business of virtually any kind of protections for the public. Yeah. And... Real, I mean, for example, is the rule that passed just just yesterday, which is to rescind the what is called the stream protection rule, which allows coal miners and mountaintop miners to dump their waste in any waterway uh, uh, that they they might want. This was sold as a job creation engine. Now, is it really going to create more jobs? Uh, how many? of these operations were being shut down because the waste had to be shipped 20 miles to a storage facility rather than thrown into the river. You know, I mean, really how different is that? So, you know, Trump came in on a theory that a large section of this country was being ignored and abandoned and not being given the opportunities for, uh, you know, advancement in certain ways. And, and I agree with him, actually, uh, on, on that broad point that uh, a large section of this country has been abandoned. I agree with him. Yeah. But are the outcomes going to get you there? And I, I would do one specific one, and that is on antitrust policy. So we have laws on the books. We've had them on the books for 100 years to break up concentrated power. Right. A lot of what Trump talked about on the campaign trail was about how the elites and by proxy, he was not just talking about elites in government and elite bureaucrats, but he was talking about elite corporate interests were getting away with murder and and punishing the American people. Well, the greatest way that that, uh, a Trump administration could counteract that is by breaking up these concentrations of power and ensuring more competition regionally throughout the country. One of his uh, top 
advisors, this guy Peter Navarro, he's an economist, he runs now what's called the National Trade Council, has said that one of his main goals is to take these international supply lines that these multinational corporations rely on and repatriate them into the United States. In other words, have more manufacturing here in the United States rather than having a chicken that's in the United States shipped out to China to be processed and then shipped all the way back to the United States, uh, which is what we do now. Yeah. So hold them to that. Are we going to do that? Are we going to use the antitrust laws? Are we going to use the various ways that executive agencies can break up concentrated power? I think that's the greatest area of opportunity where you're going to see if Trump's reality matches up to his rhetoric. Great, man. Well, anything um, else you need to say before we go here? Thank you for your time. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me on uh, the podcast. This has been great. Where can people find you if they want to stay in touch online and whatnot? Absolutely. So I'm often a presence on Twitter at ddayen, D-D-A-Y-E-N. I also have a newsletter that comes out usually twice a week. Uh, and you can subscribe to that at tinyletter.com. That's one word, tinyletter.com slash David Dayen, D-A-V-I-D-D-A-Y-E-N. And then in your email box, you'll get uh, links to every story that I do because I do them in a variety of different places. Right. And as well, uh, a little bit more about appearances I've made and thoughts that I've had. Great. And uh, the book is called Chain of Title and it's available everywhere books are sold. That's right. Can yep. contact your local bookseller, library, Amazon, wherever you get books. I'm a couple chapters in and really enjoying it. Um, I think it's a nice, it's actually a nice evening read because there's a lot of information in there, but there's also like good storytelling and, and even some Thank humor, you. some dark, some black humor. <laughs> um, so man, and then we're going to have a link to the book on our show notes as well as well, if we can find that article you wrote, if it is online, we'll have a link to it. Um, David, thank you so much for your time. That was a great conversation. Absolutely. Thanks, Dan. For those show notes, go to depolarizedpodcast.com. You can email me at depolarizedpodcast at gmail.com or find me on Twitter at D-A-N-K-O-C-H. And of course, you can join the Facebook discussion group, which is called Depolarized Podcast Discussion Group. It's an awesome place for people to practice this depolarization in a safe environment. We'll see you next week with one of the new pro-life generation voices, Amy Murphy from Life Matters Journal. She's talking about a consistent ethic of life and of nonviolence. And man, it's a good conversation. 